All right. Let's remember where we are. Job has listened to God's second speech about these two fantastical creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan. And then Job's response to God's speech is real repentance. What was lacking from Job's last response? In his last response, he said, you're right that you, God, have the right to do these things and I'll keep my mouth shut. But that's not the right answer. They're not at least stopping there. And so in addition to that acceptance, after God's second speech, Job adds humility, real humility of the heart that not just he has to deal with the fact that God is God, but that it's actually good that God is God and you wouldn't want it any other way. And so Job comes out of this second speech admitting that he has sinned, that he said things he shouldn't have said and, and accused God of injustice, which is an affront to God's very character. And then I want to read this. I read it at the end of class last week, but I want to start here just quoting directly from Christopher Ash. He says, Job echoes God's introductory challenge to both speeches. I will question you and you make it known to me, prefixing the echo with the words here and I will speak. His focus now is on what he heard when God spoke. In one of the most famous verses in the book, Job contrasts a previous hearing with a new seeing. Before the terrible events of this book, Job's knowledge of God was by the hearing of the ear. In the context of this book, that refers to the framework of understanding that he shared with the comforters and with so many morally serious philosophers and theologians throughout history. He has heard the traditions of these people, the assured results of their traditional understanding, which has come into his ears from childhood. He has heard that there is one almighty God, that this God was righteous and all-powerful, and that therefore certain things might be expected morally in the world. All this he has heard by the hearing of the ear. But now, verse 5, my eyes see you. So Job sees God in a clearer way, has a better understanding of God and how God acts in his universe through God's second speech. So what we have to do then is go backwards and ask the question, how in the world did that happen? What did God say in a speech about the behemoth and the Leviathan that provoked this response from Job? How is that even possible? He, he did not he was not called up to heaven and given a mystical vision of the courts of God. He saw in his imagination two monsters, two likely mythological beasts. And somehow that got him from there to here. He hasn't literally seen anything. And yet he says that now he has seen God. And, and remember, where is Job when this happens physically? Where is Job when he gets this vision from God and he calls out in repentance and faith? He's sitting on the same ash heap that he was on before with the same sores and the same pain. He hasn't moved. He's, he's nowhere. It's not, it's not like he got to get some physical disconnection from that pain and then reflect back on it. You know what, God, now that the pain is over, I see that I shouldn't have said those things. No, he's still in the pain. 
He's still in that place. And yet, somehow, however it is that he heard these words from God, he, the, the effect is that he sees God with clarity that he's never had before. And the result of that clarity is repentance. Incidentally, that will always be the result of seeing God more clearly is repentance. And the result of true repentance is this comfort and hope uh, and and peace that passes understanding. Because to to actually know, not, not merely intellectually, to experientially and actually know that God has accepted you on the basis of his son and not on the basis of anything you have done or will do, not on the basis of anything you have thought or will think or have said or will said, to, to actually know that this is all of God's doing is the only thing that can ever create that level of real peace, hope, assurance. Everything else is fake. It doesn't last. Look how good I am, and that's why God has accepted me. How many minutes is that going to last you? <laughs> look, look how uh, theologically wise I am. Look how much knowledge I have, and that's why God has accepted me. Yeah, good luck with that. Right? So we all know that what we need, that's why it always goes back to Genesis 3. You've got to understand the depth of the fall. You've got to understand that you are so far gone in sin that there is absolutely nothing we can do. Nothing. And then once you understand that, you cry out like Paul does in Romans, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see God for who he really is. It brings about humility, which is what gets us to hope. That's why in Christianity you have to go down to get up. (laughs) The, The way to glory is through this downward trajectory because humility is the only thing that gets you there. You will never repent for real if you think, that salvation is something that you bring about. You will never repent for real if you think you have to be good enough for God because you can't be honest enough even with yourself about how bad you are. Until you see that the pit is so deep, you will never get out of it, of anything of your own doing. You can't be honest. And so somehow, in this speech about the behemoth and the Leviathan, Job has had that vision. He's seen God for who he is, and it's brought him to real repentance, which is the only thing that can give him real hope. And he is able to have that repentance and that real hope while still sitting on the smoldering ash heap with his sores and wounds. It's pretty stunning. So this is the climax of the book, obviously. (laughs) But what is it? (laughs) The climax of the book of Job is a speech about two Mythical beasts. It seems pretty weird. So we've got to go back and figure out what, what is this? What happened? What was said? What is God talking about? And there are different points of view on this. Uh, reasonable, God-fearing people can disagree. I am not, there are, there are, so let me just, one category of people that interpret these speeches try to tie back the behemoth and the leviathan to actual creatures, to real living monsters that Job would have known through first or second hand experience with them. The crocodile is one that's commonly referred to and the hippopotamus, some ancient versions of those. I don't think that's right. 
And I don't think that's right because I don't think you have to do that. I don't, I don't think the text is making the claim to us that we're to consider these as literal creatures. Um, and so let's talk a little. I, I, I think the text is making... The, the text is making the claim that Job knows what these creatures are. That's a different claim. If, if I said, uh, does anybody know what a snuffleupagus is? The fact that many of you know what a snuffleupagus is doesn't make it a real creature. If I start naming... I can't do it because I'm not a nerd like you people. But if I started naming specific dragons from Harry Potter, some of you would know these dragons, right? But it doesn't mean dragons are a real thing. Myth, in the technical sense of the term, when we hear myth, we immediately think, oh, made up story. Uh, Somebody saying something is a lie. Myths are stories. They are fictional stories that pull in true things from reality and make them bigger and grander to make literary or moral points. And so myth as a technical term has been around for as long as people have been telling stories. And the impression that I think the text gives us is that Job should know what these creatures are. Well, why would he know what these creatures are? Well, either they're real creatures And as you read these descriptions, it doesn't seem possible. These creatures are given supernatural powers. (laughs) Or they're myths. They're mythical creatures that were well-known mythical creatures. And we actually know that's true. As you read ancient myths, you find these creatures and versions of these creatures. And you find versions of these creatures elsewhere in Scripture, which we'll get to in a minute. So there is nothing, I don't think we can be 100% certain whether these are real creatures or storybook creatures. I think, for me, there's a very convincing amount of evidence that these are mythical creatures. What is important that you understand is that if these are mythical creatures, that doesn't take anything away from the script, from Scripture and from the truth of Scripture. Scripture interacts with things that people are familiar with. Scripture speaks to us in a way that we can understand it. Scripture isn't making the claim here that these creatures are real. It's not making the claim that they're not directly, but it's not making the claim that they are. And so you don't have to worry that if you say... These are mythical creatures that were well-known by people in the ancient world. You're somehow making the whole book of Job a myth or all of Scripture a myth. No, God's talking to people in ways they can understand. When God talks about his hands, when God talks about, I draw my children to my bosom, God doesn't have these body parts. We're okay with that. We understand how language works. And this is how sometimes myths can be used. These are... uh, Um, Derek Thomas calls them beasts of the imagination Christopher Ashe calls them storybook creatures Um, there there is clear evidence there's good evidence that these are not real the clear evidence is that Job would know what they are he would know what God meant when God said these things so let's read a little bit of this Um, Kate will you go to Isaiah 27 Noah or Andrew, Andrew, will you go to Psalm 74? Kate, Isaiah 27. 
I almost said Isaiah. I've been hanging out with Neil Stewart too much. <laughs> 27 and uh, Psalm 74. Kate, read verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish the... Leviathan. Leviathan with the, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So the prophet Isaiah speaks about the Leviathan, the serpent of the sea. Now, we've been reading Isaiah a lot the last year. Do we remember what C, S-E-A, not letter C, C language is in the Bible? Chaos, danger, darkness, it's it's a terrifying place. The sea is because it's outside of your control. Uh, You know this when you feel undercurrent, right? In Costa Rica, when you feel waves, I tell the kids, the sea doesn't care if you live or die. And that sort of healthy fear and reverence of the sea is used in biblical language a lot. The Psalms use sea language for, you know, I'm being pulled down into the sea and the, the, the plants are dragging me down and this idea that I'm being trapped and the waves are overtaking me and sea language. Well, Isaiah does that directly of the Leviathan using that name. Uh, Psalm 74, 12 through 14, Andrew. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Only God's redemptive power could stay, push back the danger of the Leviathan, the creatures of the sea. And again, in in wisdom literature especially, sea language is not just about being out on the water. It is this idea of fearful chaos and danger for body and soul. So the Leviathan is this terrifying sea monster, a many-headed, fire-breathing sea monster who conveys to us danger, evil that brings danger against body and soul. One uh, language scholar says he is the embodiment of cosmic evil itself. That is the image that Job would have had of the Leviathan. And so for, for scripture, not just in Job, but in all these other places, to take these mythical creatures, these storybook creatures, and to use them to convey that visceral response of fear and of danger and of overwhelming power that you could not do anything about yourself. Uh, Derek Thomas says, the name Leviathan is associated with the seven-headed sea dragon in ancient mythology. Lurking in the back of Job's mind are fears associated with mythological descriptions of a super beast of the sea. In showing to Job this Leviathan creature, God is calling upon Job to think through the complexities of the providence that has formed his life so far and realize that the universe is much more complicated than we imagine. There is a cosmic battle taking place between the forces of darkness and the forces of good. This is what God is doing with these creatures. It's, it's, He's just given the speech about evil having a place in his world. 
and, and how many things in this world are beyond our power and beyond our control and that evil and the dangers that evil presents, even death itself, are so far beyond our power and beyond our control. And now he, he, he conjures up the, in the imagination the image of these two ancient beasts with which Job would be familiar, and they are terrifying, and we're not actually afraid of beasts because these beasts aren't real. But what are we afraid of? Everything else. And death the most. Death the most. And so for God to bring up these mythical creatures, to, to, to get at that Fear. Uh, some people like horror movies. Some people hate them. Really well-made horror movies. The filmmaker knows how to do all of these little things along the way that just amp up the fear. They just unsettle you and make you uncomfortable just enough so that when you get to this huge moment, they can cause a disproportionate amount of fear given the fact that this is on a two-dimensional screen that you can hit pause and walk away from at any moment. It is not right how afraid they can make you in these movies. That's what God's doing here. God's playing, he's conjuring up these images in Job's mind to make the point that from Job's perspective, the whole world should seem out of control. And that when things were good in Job's life, God was no less in control then, and Job was no more in control then. You see, the, 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 the way we fool ourselves is that when, we are, when everything is good, we just naturally come to believe, what? I have this under control. That's what we believe. Job, it wasn't sinning by being uncharitable. He wasn't sinning by stealing in his business. He wasn't sinning by being unfaithful to his wife. Job was sinning by every day believing in his heart, even as he made sacrifices for the sin of his children, even as he went to worship, even as he prayed to God, Job was sinning by believing in his heart, I've got this under control. And he forgot. No, we never have this under control. Never. But whether we are prospering or whether we are drowning, literally drowning, God has this under control. And God is just going to raise the stakes higher and higher and higher to the point of it now invoking mythical, supernatural-ish creatures to make Job firmly aware that he doesn't control nothing. <laughs> and that the very things that he wishes he could control the most, evil, danger, death, he has the least control over. And he should feel the smallest before those things. So Job, even though he was doing what he thought everything was right, right, in his way that he worshiped God and thinks he's not sinning by his actions was believing, though maybe he wouldn't admit it, that he, by doing all these things, was in control. I'm not sure that I would say that 
him doing the things was wrong. It's a both and. It's uh, we simply will not be blameless in this life. There is always more sin that God can root out. There is always something we're holding back, carving out from perfect, unrestrained trust of God. And God found that. At a cosmic level, and we'll get to this more later or maybe next week, it's why Satan can't be right about Job. Satan can't be right about Job the same reason Satan can't be right about you. Satan thinks that we persevere ourselves. Satan thinks that we are staying with God because of how tightly we are holding God's hand. And that's why he says, do some mean stuff to Job. Job will let go of your hand. That's why on a cosmic level, that's, that's what God is doing here. The comfort we should draw is that even in our imperfection, which is great, <laughs> our sin, our unbelief, even when our, the rightness of our worship and our hearts in worship, they're not good enough. In and of ourselves, they're not good enough. Our forgiveness is not enough. We, I mean, 70 times 7, I, you know, how about 6 times 52? Right? None of it is enough. I say that, I'm looking at the poster. It's never enough. And so Satan says, you know, there's a breaking point for Job and he'll let go of your hand. And what God knows is, Job isn't walking with me because Job has me securely in his hand. I have Job securely in my hand. And that's why God can say to Satan with absolute confidence, go, do whatever you want. It's not going to make a difference. It's not going to change Job's perseverance. Job will persevere because of God, not because of Job. And that should be really encouraging to us. So yes, we have the responsibility for, for persevering. But the strength of that perseverance and the certainty of it are utterly of God and not of ourselves. I have one comment and one question. One comment is, is it possible these beasts are reflections of something in the unseen world? Which I think often mythology is. I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. That's reality, but it's not on our playing field. It's just... But again, it still has to become metaphorical language because in the unseen world, it's not like they would have body parts the way we have body parts. Right. Yeah, uh, it is. It is, and especially with the Leviathan, the, the behemoth is more of this powerful earthbound creature. The Revelation uses some language, but um, that one feels very. They both feel like myths. The behemoth feels like a myth that was well known in the ancient world. The Leviathan feels like a myth that is well known in the ancient world that is picked up by scripture many times, used in a lot of context, and every time to reflect supernatural realities. So there does seem to be a deeper connection there. And you said that his response to the first, God's first speech was repentance. His response to the second speech was humility. No, his response to the first speech did not include repentance. His response to the first speech is acceptance. All... All he says after the first speech is, yep, you're God and I'm not. I'll keep my mouth shut. So he's accepted the factual truth that God is God, but it has not driven him to repentance. And does it's, repentance require humility? Yeah, I think it does. 
I think it does. I think without humility, we think we're good enough. Real, like God-inspired humility, the, the biblical concept of humility. Otherwise, we will always convince ourselves that we're good enough. We, we will either, and this is when Jesus talks about judging in the Sermon on the Mount, he hits on both of these points. We will either change the standard from God's to our own. And when I get to write the standard, I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect because I'm not an idiot. And so I wouldn't make a standard that even I could meet perfectly, but I make one that I come real, real close. Or second point in the Sermon on the Mount, the other thing we do is forget the standard. We'll leave the standard where God set it, but I'm not going to compare myself to the standard. What am I going to do? I'm going to compare myself to you because I can always find a bunch of people that I'm better than. You always can. You can always find people that you think, oh, I thank you, God, that I am not like this person. <laughs> and that's why in that context is the only reason Jesus says don't judge. Jesus does want us to judge. He tells us in lots of other places that we have to judge. But he says, let me tell you about these two broken contexts that you guys bring your judgments to all the time. You either make up the standard or you judge yourself against other people instead of the standard. Judge not lest ye be judged. And then what does he say? For by the measure. If you judge by these ways, you will be judged by these ways. And God will judge you not against another person. He'll judge you against himself. You will not win. You will not win. Abort. Bad. Bad plan. And people can judge repentance. We have to. You can tell whether somebody's turned and are not doing that behavior. It's like 10 verses later in the sermon. You can't judge humility. Like, only God can really know if you humble your heart. You could say that about anything, though. So we can't judge perfectly. We will make mistakes in our judgments. And we can't judge with finality. God sees the whole picture, and we see little slivers of it. So those get carve-outs. We're not judging perfectly. We, we have to judge with some measure of humility just for our humanness. But that, Scripture says, doesn't stop us from judging in lots of contexts. And then secondly, we don't judge with finality. The Lord will make the final declaration about their soul, not us. Despite every piece of evidence we've ever seen, the Lord will make the final. How would the thief on the cross have been judged up to the moment of his death? So we got to be real careful when we judge with finality. That is, that is the you know, and again, it's the exception that proves the rule. It's not like our judgments are therefore useless. Everybody should just live however they want to live because at the last moment it's 50-50. Maybe God comes through for you. No, that's, that's sinning more that grace may abound. That's nonsense. But it is when you get up to that line of, I believe strongly in my judgment. Here's all the evidence for my judgment. I'm going to my brother with tears in my eyes to talk through the consequences of that judgment if it's true. But am I willing to say that person is in hell? Whew. That there be dragons. That's real dangerous. Um, but yeah, 10, ten verses, um, the ten's not accurate, but 10 verses later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells you that you, you judge people by their fruit. You know the truth of someone's teaching by judging the fruit on the tree. <laughs> right? So he wants us. The judging is an important part. How do you snatch your brother out of the fire if you haven't judged that your brother is in the fire? No, there's lots of judging that has to happen. But Jesus is saying in this context, 
where we make the standard, judge not. That's crazy talk. And in this other context where we use God's standard, but instead of judging ourselves by the standard, we compare one person to another, judge not. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's bad. You won't win. And so the second speech that produces the repentance and the humility is Job repenting of the I've got life under control piece. Yeah. Him, him, remember, his specific accusations were that God needs his help to run a well-run world. His, uh, his accusation at its core is that God is doing it wrong. God is not running the world correctly. And he said that. And yeah, he's also said things of faith. I know you're God. And, and in, the, in response to the last speech, he even went so far as to say, you have the right to do it. But that's not enough. Where, where God gets him here is, I'm, I'm glad that you're the one running this world. Not just that you are in charge, but it is good that you are in charge. That's not, I'm enjoying this ash heap any more than I was before. It's not, therefore I can make believe that my sores don't hurt. No, Job is living in the darkness. But he's now learned by seeing God that the darkness is God's too. And that's, oh, that hurts. It's hard. It's a lesson that we will never learn the first time. It's, <laughs> we'll have to keep coming back to this. And I like that he got it without God explaining his, what was going on in his life. God didn't ever give him an explanation. No. He talks about two mythical creatures. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so mind-blowing to me about this. God, how, how <laughs> you've got to believe, and this ties into the sermon, God says the way that he perseveres us is through word and spirit. They always go together, word and spirit. God gives his words and spirit. You've got to believe without the spirit, we can't make any sense of this. <laughs> it's, it's a behemoth and Leviathan. We can, we, what? And from that, I'm supposed to take away that God is the Lord of the dragons too and the dragons in my life? God is sovereign over them and they're on a leash and they don't go one inch further than the leash allows. And every inch the leash does allow is objectively accomplishing good. Not that it itself is good because one day it'll be done away with forever, but it is objectively accomplishing good. Satan is accomplishing God's purposes. Satan is accomplishing God's purposes. Think about that. Satan is doing what he wants to do. Satan is doing things that are evil. Satan will be forever held to account for his rebellion. And every single thing he does is accomplishing God's purposes. <sighs> Who could understand this? Now do you get Job? Because that's the point. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Isn't just, Job, you're a flea that doesn't matter. Let me put you in your puny place. It's a real question. Job, I laid the foundations of the earth. I did this. All, all the chaos 
I made this. If I am good, then this is for good. And so you can't have it both ways, Job. You can't say that I'm good and that the world I'm running is all wrong. You say, but look at this world. This is not good. And where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Ugh, I hate Job. I love Job. But I really dislike Job. The book, not the man. The figures of the behemoth and the Leviathan come not as an anticlimax, but rather use the language of well-known stories to make the point that only the Lord can keep evil on a leash. The Leviathan is the ruler of this world, John 12. The prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. And if Job, why would God bring those things to mind? Because if Job can tame them and harness them for Job's purposes, then there's a chance Job's right and he should be allowed to run the world. But God says, before you decide to take control away from me because you're going to do a better job, let me just remind you of some of the job responsibilities that are on my job description. Tame the Leviathan. I can't even do the two-horned ox thing from the last chapter. And the behemoth, just incidentally, when you compare the myths of the behemoth and the way the behemoth is talked about, the behemoth is very closely associated with death itself. Like the embodiment of the figure of, of, of death. Maybe we could replace, not we could add to the behemoth here with that, that grim reaper image that we know from, from literature. That's pretty scary. The, the grim reaper comes. I don't think you can talk him out of it. <laughs> I don't think you can put him within your control. Uh, And so God says, even death. We've started to think of death as natural. We do that because we don't like to face the reality. Death is the ultimate enemy. Death is at the top of the heap of enemies. Yeah, we, in this life, we'll get old and then we'll die. That's not because it's natural. That's because we're cursed. That's because we're cursed. And we have deaths that come not that way. We have deaths that come way too soon by earthly accounting. And that's when we're actually honest about death, that it's just bad. It's just bad. We want elderly people in pain and struggle to die so that they can go home and be with the Lord and their trial and struggle be over. And so we think that's good. No, it's not. What would be good is to not have suffering anymore, to not have decay anymore, to not have death anymore. That's what would be good. And so we've, we trivialize death. Until we can't, until we're faced with a situation so horrific that we can't. I shouldn't say trivialize. We don't trivialize. We lose sight of it as enemy number one. 
And so God says all these things that have to be tamed, that have to be controlled in order to have a well-run universe, death is one of them. And, and he not just tamed death, he conquered death. New Testament says through death conquered death. He went into death. That's what we're saying when we say he descended into hell. He went into death. And by death, overthrew death. What part of that could Job have accomplished? (laughs) In the well-run world that Job wants to take charge of so that he can do a better job than God would do, which part of that does Job accomplish? Well, the dying part. He can can do the dying. Everything after that is way beyond his capability and to God's point, even way beyond his understanding. And and that's, that's the tension I'm trying to describe between acceptance and what comes next. Intellectually accepting God is better because he's more powerful is not the same as understanding God is better because he's more powerful and because he is all good and all wise. And that's, that's that extra layer that whenever we have it is real humility. That's what humility is. And then the result of that is repentance and the result of repentance is always hope. Is there a step in there for intellectually knowing God's way is better and you trust that it's good, but you don't quite feel, you're not quite there yet. Like, you know in your head it's good. You're going to take him at his word that it's good. It doesn't seem good, but you don't like it. Maybe that's what you say. You just don't like it. The tension between the mental and the heart. Job spent a long time sitting on the pile. So I want, to, I want to say this carefully because I, I want to be gracious and sympathetic and I want to tell the truth. Job was sinning between the two speeches. Not sin that separated him from the love of God in Christ. Not sin that could not be forgiven. Not sin that made him worse than other people. But Job was in sin. But that's why he repented. So we, we have to get there. We have to believe that God, by his words and spirit, can and will get us there. We should not be surprised in the weakness of our flesh that it's such a struggle. We shouldn't beat ourselves up over the fact that it's such a struggle. Um, the darkness is dark. It's, those of us that grew up in traditions where you pretend that the darkness isn't dark are very sensitive to this. Or you just pretend. (laughs) Um, And so it's a very real thing. We just saw it in Job. To be there on the intellectual ascent and to not be there in the feelings of God's goodness behind it. It's a very real thing. We should not be content to stay there. Um, I don't, our conversation over the last couple of weeks about the difference between persistence and stubbornness, I don't think you could ever hit that line in praying for God to get you there. 
catch my feelings, catch my heart up with what I know theologically to be true. I think just persistence in prayer, saturating yourself in word and spirit. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong that it doesn't happen quickly. I would just caution you to never never let yourself accept the fact that this is how it will stay or how it should be. Don't be too content there. Don't, don't, yeah. And it's a delicate balance because um, if you despair in and of yourself, you can, drive your, you, know, you can drive yourself deeper into despair with the feeling of failure that why don't I feel the way I should? Um, but if you focus on the positive of, of through prayer, saturate yourself in word and spirit, know because God just did it in Job, and he did it while Job was still sitting on the, the heap, that this is what God does with his people, that his perseverance is, your perseverance is deeply important to him. He will bring it about. Are, you, are we praying for it earnestly enough? Do we actually believe that God will do that part of it? Right? It's the prayer of faith that availeth much. It's, it's faith the size of a mustard seed, but it's faith. Uh, it's not praying the words while believing in our hearts. God can't do it. I'm just too sad. Um, so that's the tension. It's a very understandable place to be given the darkness of the darkness. But when you see God the way Job saw him here, the kind of humility and repentance it drives you to isn't the kind that leaves you prostrate on the floor in despair. It's the kind that draws you back up with, with holy hands and joy and praise, uh, hope, yeah, it's a great question. Let me read from Christopher Ash for a minute. The point of Job 41 is to make us tremble at the awesome power of the prince of evil. If we thought evil was bad, when we come face to face with the Leviathan, we realize it is infinitely more frightening than we had thought. You cannot begin to take on the problem of evil, Job, and you know that. But I can, says the Lord. That is the point. This awesome monster is a creature. Death is a created thing. Decay, pain, suffering. They're not over God, and God just has to deal with them. They are under God. God is using them for his purposes before he deals with them forever. We have the promise that the forever they are dealt with. We have the proof in the resurrection that they were actually dealt with forever. And so the fact that they still persist and that we live in this already and not the not yet is proof that God has good purposes for them. If he couldn't make a better world with them than without them, they wouldn't be here. That's tough. Oh, that's so tough. But that's the point. Ash says, a walker enters a farmyard and is terrified by wild dogs, yapping, snarling, and snapping around his ankles. He's scared. And the question he is bound to ask is, are these dogs restrained in any way? Are they on a leash? Is there an owner around who can call them off? 
As Job suffers, his greatest and deepest fear is that the monster who attacks him is unrestrained, that the attacks will go on forever with unrelieved ferocity, and that the monster has been given a free hand, unlimited access to Job and his life. He is afraid that there is no sovereign God who has evil on a leash. But there is, and when Job sees that, he is filled with awe. That's why we get the beginning of the story that Job doesn't get, that we know Satan is actually the beast that's on the leash here, and that there's nothing that you can imagine that is not in that category then. Satan is the one who said, I want to go do these things to Job. And God said, you'll go here, but not there. You'll do this much, but not that. And the what he does hurts bad. But there is an awesome God who has him on the leash and is doing what is for our good and for his glory. And that, I, it can't expire, inspire anything other than awe when Job sees it. And to Kathy's point, it doesn't answer all the questions. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He does not explain. Let me show you the benefit on these 18 other people of what happened here. And let me show you how, oh, and by the way, did you know Satan was involved, Job? And Job never, ever gets it. He gets something deeper. He gets knowledge of who God is. That's what he gets. That's right. That's right. That's right. That even, that's right. Even the mystery of evil is God's mystery. Even Satan, listen to this line, even Satan is God's Satan, if we dare put it like this. This means, back to Ash for a minute, that as we suffer, as we sit with others who suffer, we may with absolute confidence bow down to the sovereign God, knowing that while evil may be terrible, it cannot and will not go one tiny fraction beyond the leash on which God has put it, and it will not go on forever, for the one to whom we belong is God. I'll tell you, in our wrestling with our desire for our circumstances to change, and I don't say that in a negative way because we should pray for the dark circumstances to change, I still have never met the group of Christians who sincerely pray, come Lord Jesus, enough. The, the idea that we want this to be over forever. He's promised us that it will be over forever. He's told us he can usher in that day on perfect timing. I can't speak for every one of us in this room, but I can speak for me and I can speak for most Christians that I've spent a lot of time. We just don't pray that way enough. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, should not just be a response to the front page of the newspaper. It should be the sincere cry of our hearts. We should want this darkness to be over. Not just our darkness. Let me get past this so I can get back to the good part of life again. All darkness. Job has no idea. You have something Job doesn't have. Job has no idea what it will cost to defeat the Leviathan. His own son. The unity of the Godhead. The price that God will pay to destroy the Leviathan. There is no greater price. 
No greater love has someone than this than to lay down their life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the price God would be willing to pay to bring the Leviathan to final defeat. Because you can't beat evil with evil. Not ultimately. You can win a battle that way. You can't win a war. That's why Satan loves it when we respond to evil done to us with evil in return. We're we're just perpetuating the evil. The way that evil can finally be conquered is with good. is with holiness. Not, Not what we can bring, but perfect good, perfect holiness. And that is the price that God will be willing to pay. Death and the one who holds the power of death will be destroyed. And, and Job here finally sees that he couldn't do it. And that God not just could, but is and will. And we can add has. God has done it. What more can he say than to us he has said? What, what more proof would God have to give us to make us humble ourselves. Why do you think Christians don't pray come quickly? I can only speak for myself. I am so caught up in this life. I am so caught up in the world in front of me. I'm thinking about what I have to do and and what we're trying to produce with with children and and even good things marriage and family and church and and I'm just so caught up in making this life and this world better and my life's not that bad I think if I think when our lives get bad we get a little better at praying come quickly lord jesus right uh and I think the combination of being focused on this life and this life not being that bad sometimes is a real distraction.